Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm whence it came. So says Elrond in The Lord of the Rings. That is the movie, not the book. This is the underlying premise of the story. The Lord of the Rings is a travel narrative, a story whose plot line can basically be charted out on a map. The plot begins in the Shire, Frodo's home, where all is peace and quiet, but the conflict requires him to travel, and the rising action continues, and he and his companions venture into enemy territory. Only there can the conflict really be resolved. There is danger all throughout, but the closer Frodo gets to Mordor, and Mount Doom in particular, the more climactic the action becomes. In a story like this, knowing where you are on the map is far from trivial. It says something about the storyline itself. In many ways, the Gospels are also travel narratives like this. Matthew and Luke, for the most part, follow the geographical plot line handed down to them from Mark. After the events of Jesus' birth and baptism, uh, we have Jesus preaching and conducting his ministry in the north, in Galilee. But the climactic moments at Caesarea Philippi, uh, in which Jesus says that he he, he agrees with Peter's confession that he's the Messiah, and announcement that they're going to go to Jerusalem, uh, is there that Jesus says that uh, the travel narrative is going to take on a new shift. They're now headed to Jerusalem, and what awaits them there is certain rejection and suffering. All throughout Matthew, we have seen Jesus engage in conflict with the religious leaders of Israel, particularly the Pharisees. More than any gospel writer, Matthew has gone out of his way to paint the Pharisees as villains. Just like Frodo in The Lord of the Rings runs into an orc or two in his journey, uh, but this increases exponentially as he ventures into Mordor, so too Jesus has frequently encountered the Pharisees in Galilee. But in Matthew 21, we have him officially entering what we could think of as enemy territory. This is like Pharisee headquarters. And yet, Jerusalem to Mordor, I admit, is a bit heavy-handed, even from Matthew's extreme perspective. Jerusalem is, well, complicated. After all, Jesus has said things like, well, in 535, that we should not swear by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. This is an allusion to Psalm 48, 1-2, which reads, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, and the far north, the city of the great king. Jerusalem doesn't coincidentally just happen to be where most of Jesus' enemies are. It's also the city appointed by God, talked about in so much scripture as God's city, the epicenter of God's kingdom rule. The reason for the significance of this is not just because it's the capital city. The thing that makes Jerusalem so important It's not because that's where the wealthy and elite reside or because there's some great restaurants there. The main attraction is the temple. 
But this only compounds our problem from earlier. Matthew has recorded Jesus speaking out against the religious establishment, providing forgiveness of sins directly himself. We have seen all the way in the beginning that John the Baptist, very significantly, holds his revival meetings out in the desert, that is, away from the temple cult. In this episode, and the following one, we will be in Matthew 21, 1-22, which covers Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem, and then his actions within the temple. Now, I insist on joining these two together, uh, because the first unit, 21, 1-11, the events traditionally celebrated on Palm Sunday, just can't be divorced from what happens next. Jesus isn't just going to Jerusalem, kind of like Frodo isn't just going to Mordor. He is going to Mount Doom to complete his mission. Jesus isn't just arriving in the capital city. His entry into Jerusalem culminates in his entry to the temple. So I've entitled this as Jesus's Triumphal Temple Entry. By joining these two together and thinking about the larger geographical plot line of Matthew as a travel narrative, it should become clear that Jesus' whole mission, what he came to do to save his people from their sins, how he relates to the religious leaders, as well as the whole system surrounding the temple, is about to come to a head in these verses. But unlike Frodo entering Mordor, this adventure is not quite so straightforward and Jesus' stance is complex. And we won't appreciate his mission until we see Jesus from several perspectives. So, as I read our text, think about how Jesus relates to those who are in Jerusalem, particularly within the temple. Does he hate them? Does he love them? How does he feel about them? Matthew 21, uh, 1 through 22. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out of the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. 
In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Well, I hope you noticed it. The portrayals of Jesus are actually pretty different. Besides the image of Jesus receiving children, I think one of the most peaceful and calming images of the Lord from the Gospels comes here, from the triumphal entry. And yet, this serene setting is juxtaposed with the very next image, when he arrives at his destination. Notice how things turn, and the image is no longer of peace, serenity, and humility, but of an angry prophet, filled with righteous indignation, threatening condemnation. In the time that we have left in our episode, we'll consider the first portrayal in verses 1 to 11, and then in our next episode, we will consider 12 through 22. Jesus is portrayed in this section as the humble king of peace. That's brought out in a couple different ways. First, a lot of attention in our text is given to the fact that Jesus comes in on a donkey. We are given a comparatively long description of how Jesus comes to be on this donkey. What we would come to expect in kind of standard biblical narrative would be for the author to simply insert the animal, start off right away with Jesus on it, and simply leave the reader to fill in the gaps about where this animal came from, if we even are expected to give it a second thought. But here the animals are, are so prominent. Uh, this shows how Jesus has planned this entry in advance made arrangements so that when they hear the Lord needs it, they will allow it to be given. It's kind of like if, if this were a movie and Matthew were a director, he would have the animals in focus in the center of the frame with the other events in the background, at least for a while anyway. So Jesus is not just riding on a donkey because he's tired and this was the most convenient animal at hand. Now Matthew brings out um, what was more under the surface in Mark. John also brings out the citation by quoting Zechariah 9.9, so we get the significance. The idea of this original passage is that the war horses will be cut off. There will be no need for military engagement, uh, for no military equipment, like a charger, because the time of peace has come. So the animal speaks of humility, of peace, of goodwill. The figure is not on a war horse. He has not come in vengeance to attack his enemies in Zechariah 9. Uh, but then again, the figure is not just one among the thousands and thousands who came to Jerusalem as required by law to celebrate the Passover. He is the king. Both of these important concepts lie behind Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem on a donkey. This more positive portrayal of Jesus is also communicated by his reception. The people respond by singing from Psalm 118. Now, this is the final psalm of the Halal Psalms, which were often sung at Passover. And rabbinic tradition records them being sung in various stages at the Passover meal itself. The original psalm talks about a victorious hero who has won Israel's battle for her, and so the people respond with rejoicing when he returns victoriously. Now, this is a time when the people of Israel are probably speaking better than they know. 
Uh, the word Hosanna literally means save now, but by the first century, it had become kind of a normal greeting. Again, the people are singing a popular song at the time, but put in this context, the reader of Matthew knows that there is much more significance. Jesus is the victorious hero. Of course, from what we know from the wider scope of Scripture, and even from the statement in Matthew like 23:39, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we can see the so-called triumphal entry as a kind of foreshadowing, or even a type, of what will happen in the future when the true remnant of Israel, who are waiting for the Lord, joyfully receive him at his second coming. All Israel will one day be saved. They will one day truly say from their hearts, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Lord will come as he wants to come, on a donkey, all fighting being a memory of the past. In that sense, we can even see here God allowing his son to get a confirmation, a preview of what will eventually happen. Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace after judgment has been executed and righteousness reigns as a reality that will eventually come. The triumphal entry is a reminder of that. It also speaks of how Jesus wanted to come that Sunday long ago. He is not one who revels in judgment. His desire is that everyone would be saved and no one would be judged. This is particularly brought out in Luke's account, in which between the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the actions in the temple, we read uh, Luke 19, 41-44, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, all of this really does complicate the Lord of the Rings comparison I made earlier. Jesus is heading into what we have been set up to envision as enemy territory. But Jesus' prayer is for the peace of Jerusalem. He doesn't want to kill his enemies. He didn't want judgment. He came to his own, offering the kingdom. But they would not have this man to be king over them. Oh, the things that he did to make for peace. Though this is of such a concern to Jesus, and he is a man of peace, there are times, according to him, in, well, in which, well, war is necessary. And so it's like with, with tears in his eyes, he gets off the donkey and enters the temple, ready to pronounce judgment and clean house. There are a few important applications for us. One, we need to follow the example of our Lord and, and the way we ride into a situation, so to speak, whatever that may be, should be one of humility and peace. Um, we need to be people whose desire is for peace and yet be willing to call out sin if we have to. But the general level application shouldn't replace a more specific one. Psalm 122 verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper who love you. We should be praying for and hastening the coming of the Lord Jesus to bring peace to this place that is the apple of God's eye. And yet, all of this doesn't mean we turn a blind eye towards sin, a lesson which should become clear in our next episode. 
Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash partner.